Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Weekend FCPA, episode 120, the weekend ending September 14, 2018, the Hurricane Florence and Beyond edition. As Hurricane Florence has now made landfall on the Carolinas and is moving to the interior of the United States, Hurricane Isaac is hurtling towards the Gulf Coast, and Storm X is bashing the Texas coast. Jay Rosen and myself are back with a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. But first, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. What are some of the stories we take a look at this week? Well, the FCPA enforcement action involving United Technologies. A Goldman partner uses the company hotline. What happens? CBS CEO Les Moonves goes down, not for his Me Too moment, but for lying to the board about it. What does GDPR mean for blockchain? A serious fraud office win in a document production case against a U.S. company, KBR. Matthew Stevenson's asks if the Hoskins case was correctly decided. And Leslie Swarick on why corporations need a global compliance framework. I hope you will enjoy this episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 120 for the week ending, September 14, 2018, the Hurricane Florence and Beyond edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. How are you holding out in Houston? So uh, we actually have a tropical storm or something or other in the Gulf, so we're getting hammered today. But uh, the biggest problem is there's one looks like it's bearing down on us, Isaac. But we have to um, probably uh, uh, hold our hearts over our hats over our hearts for our friends in the Carolinas who have been hammered by Florence, which made landfall in North Carolina yesterday and now is rummaging around. So uh, we're thinking about you guys as well. So, Jay, we had a pretty interesting uh, ethics and compliance week. Lots of things that uh, you might not think of uh, in the in the realm of ethics and compliance, but uh, I think they were pretty applicable. And it started with a uh, FCPA enforcement action uh, with United Technologies uh, settling a case with uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. The Department of Justice had previously given a declination. Uh, it was really interesting because there were multiple bribery schemes going on in multiple countries. Uh, so it's, uh, I, w- I would say on one hand, a little bit hard to reconcile why there was no criminal prosecution, although it could have been uh, because uh, they were in such foreign countries that they couldn't um, get the uh, yeah, individuals um, or at least uh, bring them uh, to the United States. So, uh, we had uh, Otis Elevator, a subsidiary, 
engaging in bribery and corruption in Azerbaijan. We had uh, IAE, the International Aero Engines uh, subsidiary, and Pratt & Whitney engaged in bribery and corruption in China. Otis, in, Otis Elevator uh, back also in China. And then uh, UTC, United Technologies, was involved in wide-ranging uh, bribery and corruption through uh, funding of leisure travel for government and officials from China, Kuwait, South Korea, Pakistan, Thailand, and Indonesia, proving once again that if you're going to spell M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E, Mickey Mouse, uh, and take foreign officials to Orlando, you probably should have a business there or at least a corporate uh, office there, which UTC did not. But or at um, least one of the Rosen girls there to show them around so they get the proper Disney experience. Uh, you know, one would never do. You have to have the pair. <laughs> you have to have the full pair, Millie and Michaela, or Michaela and Millie. So, oh, which is uh, which is the older by time? Millie is the younger one. So Millie is taller, but right. she's four minutes younger than Michaela. So no, oh, so Michaela's the boss. Yeah, Michaela's the boss. Okay, got it. Um, anyway, from uh, from an FCPA or at least a compliance practitioner perspective, Jay, leaving aside the issue of the uh, uh, really great result that uh, UTC got. Uh, with a declination and really a, a pretty low FCPA uh, fine and penalty, we did see uh, lots of uh, bribery schemes involved. And I think it's important for a compliance practitioner to read this case, or at least read my summary of the case on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog and Harry Casson on the FCPA blog and see if you might have uh, some of these issues in other countries as well, because uh, UTC was involved in a wide range of different bribery schemes. And uh, in, in your blog, uh, one thing that you, I think really tied it together well is you said this superior result that UTC uh, received makes clear that the DOJ's new FCPA corporate enforcement policy offers some very strong and real incentives to meet the four prongs. The very low SEC fine and penalties speak with equal strength. And just as uh, Brighton Rock, the book that you uh, mentioned in your blog by Graham Greene, can be read from a variety of angles, and the UTC FCPA enforcement action should also be read through those lenses. So uh, good stuff, Tom. Uh, next thing we have coming up, which is uh, something that just uh, makes me scratch my head, uh, a top Goldman banker raised ethics concerns, and then he was gone. And um, basically, James Katzman, who is a Goldman partner and the leader of the West Coast M&A mergers and acquisition practice, dialed the bank's whistleblower hotline in 2014 to complain about what he regarded as a range of unethical practices, according to accounts by people close to Mr. Katzman. Uh, the law firm uh, Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson was monitoring the hotline, and uh, Mr. Katzman expected that they would investigate his allegations and share them with the independent members of Goldman's board of directors. Instead, Goldman's general counsel took over the inquiry, and senior investment-making executives at the firm, including David Solomon, who is the new incoming uh, chief executive, urged Mr. Katzman to move past his complaints. 
In 2015, he left Goldman and was required to sign a confidentiality agreement that he believed prevented him from sharing his concerns to members of the board. So there were a couple issues here. One was uh, reminiscent of some of the princeling cases about potentially hiring an employee who was not qualified. That employee ended up not being um, hired. But then there was also some issues about confidential information where his partners were asking Mr. Katzman to reveal confidential information about an investment banking client that they represented. And this information could have been um, a breach of fiduciary responsibility and also used against the client. So um, really stunning stuff. And uh, probably uh, it's, it's the timing of this is very interesting with the um, power change uh, that's taking over at Goldman. So uh, any thoughts on your part, Tom? Yeah, Jay, I guess I really focused on the process part uh, because starting uh, one with the general counsel took over the investigation. And so you had an exception to the uh, apparently protocol or written, if not written protocol, the protocol followed that the outside law firm would investigate claims that came in through the hotline. They, they answer the hotline and then would do the investigations typically. But for reasons not explained in the article, the general counsel took it over. And then two, that the results would be reported to the board of directors and they weren't. Um, so it's uh, it's a little bit difficult to understand why those exceptions were made. There may have been valid reasons. I can understand if uh, a partner uses the hotline that perhaps then the general counsel, uh, it would be appropriate for the general counsel to be involved, but there was really no explanation along those lines. The, um, the question I really have, Jay, is, and your summary was great, and the way James Stewart reported it was also great, uh, or rather, uh, not James Stewart, he's our next one, but uh, three reporters from the New York Times is, would a Goldman employee who's not a partner ever trust the hotline now? Um, because... Um, this this employee ended up leaving. It also begs the question of if there was no violation of internal Goldman policy or procedure, and um, I mean sometimes you 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 do get a hotline complaint where an employee believes something, and it's just it's not correct, or their analysis and interpretation is not correct. Now that doesn't mean just because you can do something you should do something. Um, and certainly the facts laid out in the article would point to conduct, um, which, if not crossing the line, certainly kicked dirt on it. But um, I really found more questions than answers in this article. I don't know if we're going to get more information on it, but there seem to be just a lot of unusual things at play here that you would typically not see. And it really led me, like I said, to, to ask the question, would a Goldman employee ever trust the hotline going forward? Uh, another interesting fact was that in the article, um, many of his coworkers re referred to him as the the Boy Scout. And, um, you know, I, I when you don't usually, well, I don't know. I, let me, let me rephrase this. He is of such a high uh, magnitude in the pecking order there at Goldman. He was uh, a leader, a moneymaker. He was well compensated. So it seems very odd that if he reported something through the hotline, that it would not go further. And it seems even more 
incredulous that it got uh, stopped by the uh, general counsel from ever proceeding. So uh, it's interesting. They also talk about him having an issue with his uh, kids' school in Menlo Park. So, you know, it, it'd be interesting to hear why he has such a, a black and white vision of the world and if these rules that were uh, bent were really, uh, you know, worthy of uh, blowing the whistle. So uh, more to come on this, but very interesting. And this kind of leads into the next article that you um, hinted was uh, penned by James B. Stewart. And he is one of my favorite uh, business writers. He's, of course, known for uh, Den of Thieves, about the insider trading in the 80s with Ivan Boski and uh, Michael Milliken. And earlier this year, I read one of his books called Disney War, which came out in 2005. And um, it shares a lot of similarities with this case that we're going to talk about with Les Moonves. But back in 2005, it was about Michael Eisner trying to hang on to power at the Walt Disney Company. And he arrived in the mid 80s, took a moribund company and turned it into a a global juggernaut that was just minting billions and billions of dollars. But then he didn't want to let go of his power, and he had a hand-picked board who was keeping him in power. And that's kind of like the similarities here to Les Moonves. Uh, the unfortunate thing about Les Moonves is this is also uh, a Me Too story. And what's interesting is he is one of the uh, leaders here in Hollywood who really got up and supported the Me Too movement. So it sounds very much like, um, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But there's a, a situation here where he really lost his credibility with the board. And there were many people there, uh, males, who were supporting him and not wanting him to be fired. And even if he was going to go wanting him to take uh, you know, $180 million in um, severance package. But ultimately, he was guilty of consensual and non-consensual um, sexual harassment. He lied to the board, and uh, he's really put them in a bad position because concurrently happening at the same time, uh, Sumner Redstone's daughter, uh, Sherry Redstone wants to recombine uh, the assets that their company, National Amusement, owns, which is both uh, the CBS television network and uh, Paramount Studios. So it couldn't have come at a worse time. But uh, James Stewart writes a, a very compelling story. Tom, I'm sure there are some angles there that I've either glossed over or sh stand out for you. So what's your take on it? Well, really, Jay, I guess the theme uh, that struck me was it's never the crime, it's the cover-up. And here um, there was uh, knowledge that uh, he was being investigated uh, by uh, uh, Ronan Noonan, I think is his name, but uh, the, uh, a reporter for The New Yorker, or the piece came out in The New Yorker, it was well known uh, that that was going on, and um, the board was really never apprised. Uh, he mis made direct misrepresentations to the board. Uh, and your, then the end of your remarks about the Sherry Redstone uh, dispute, a, an incredibly unusual and I thought nasty lawsuit was filed by CBS Board of Directors to prevent uh, the majority shareholder from exercising majority control, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. But uh, you can't have that kind of lawsuit when you have your CEO 
who is uh, under investigation or at least a journalistic investigation. And uh, when he then did not fully inform the board of the um, problems he was in, and indeed a, a complaint had been filed against him uh, for which he was trying to get somebody a job to uh, make the complaint go away, I think that the board properly finally stepped in and acted. But it, um, this case is very troubling uh, for, for a number of reasons. Um, we both have daughters, so I think perhaps we're a little sensitive to this. But how many um, people bringing forward allegations is enough? So when the uh, article first came out, one of the board members said, I don't care if 30 people come forward and accuse him of uh, inappropriate sexual uh, contact or actions or acts. Um, that's, you know, he's been a big producer for us. Um, is three enough? Is six enough? Is 30 enough? It wasn't enough for that one person. And it wasn't enough until uh, Moonves lied to the board. So uh, a lot of troubling um Issues. Uh, Donna Bohm had a blog post today where she just excoriated the board for missing the opportunity to uh, exercise good ethical judgment, which I think was was spot on. So um, uh, I don't know how much further this will shake out for CBS. The uh, the Redstone lawsuit apparently has been resolved, and where CBS goes with Paramount going forward, uh, uh, only Sherry, perhaps Sherry Redstone knows. So, Tom, next up, we've got a couple of great articles about GDPR written by Vera Sharapanova, who has been contributing some great information to the FCPA blog. Uh, why don't you break down her thoughts on GDPR and blockchain? Well, I'm almost sorry I put these in because they're very technical and I'm not sure I can uh, accurately describe them. But let me give, give it a shot because she raised some really interesting or an interesting overall topic, Jay, which is can GDPR and blockchain coexist? And she points out that both the data controller processor versus data subject divide uh, articulated by GDPR and uh, setting different um, requirements for each really does not apply or is difficult to apply to blockchain because of the immutable nature of blockchain. Also the distributed ledger processing is difficult to reconcile with uh, blockchain and certainly the right to be forgotten. Block One of the key uh, benefits for blockchain is it's there forever so that if uh, somebody did a transaction and you wanted to take a look at it uh, or I wanted to take a look at it, we would feel comfortable that the uh, terms of the transaction had not been altered. Uh, that would seem to be completely antithetical to the right to be forgotten. So um, she, in her second part, suggests some uh, tactics or strategies, perhaps, to bring blockchain into GDPR compliance. They were fairly technical, uh, things like forking encryption, hybrid off-chain solutions, hashing, uh, and other things that, frankly, I was not too familiar with. It really pointed up the difficulty I think people are going to have, and, and certainly Mike Volkoff, but myself as included, have been <clears throat> big proponents of blockchain in the compliance space because of its immutability, meaning it, it provides a single source of truth. And if you can't have a single source of truth, um, that's going to make, uh, make everything uh, a little more difficult uh, in the data privacy, data uh, protection world going forward. 
great breakdown. I couldn't have said it better myself, Tom. And then if anybody is more interested in uh, the, some of the positive aspects of blockchain, I had a great interview this week, Jay, on innovation and compliance with uh, Ernst & Young's Paul Brody and Alex Perry on the power of blockchain. These guys, this they, they are cutting edge on blockchain. EY is way ahead of where you and I and even Volkov are, and they've got some great ideas. I would uh, urge everybody to uh, take a look at uh, that podcast for some great ideas. Great. Next up, uh, we have a company that uh, comes from your old uh, oil days, uh, KBR, and this is uh, seems to be almost a counterpart. We're going to talk about in a few minutes was Hoskins, uh, USV Hoskins decided correctly, and this uh, takes a look at a case with the SFO and whether or not they had um, rights to get certain documents uh, in an investigation. And I guess you'll talk to us about sufficient connection now. Right. So every U.S.-based corporation's general counsel and compliance officer need to read this case because this is extraordinarily significant. Um, KBR, uh, formerly part of a subsidiary of Halliburton, is uh, generally in the construction and uh, refinery construction, road building, and a few other construction-related projects. Um, They are a huge company headquartered here in Houston, founded in the 30s. So they've been around a long time. And they have a U.K. subsidiary. Um, They – U.K. subsidiary apparently retained UniOil – for some work, and the serious fraud office wanted to investigate that. The payments to Unit Oil were approved by the corporate headquarters here in Houston, KBR Inc. So the serious fraud office asked for documents from KBR Inc., the corporate uh, office here in, in the United States. Uh, KBR UK uh, balked on that and said, no, you can't get documents that are outside the United States. Well, the UK court. Uh, completely eviscerated that argument. Uh, As you might guess, for a company to claim, well, gosh, the documents are somewhere else, you can't have them, uh, despite their relevance and sufficient contacts, um, they got immediately past that, and that would just neuter uh, the um, SFO's ability to investigate uh, crimes that occurred uh, or evidence of crimes that was uh, located outside of the United Kingdom. But what that means, Jay, for every company is, Uh, If you're doing business in the United Kingdom, you're subject to producing all your documents there to the SFO. And that uh, is probably not something you've thought through or thought about, uh, document holds for the the serious fraud office. It also really speaks to, uh, uh, I think, uh, the SFO wanted to go back 21 years. Uh, At at, uh, five years ago, KBR was owned by Halliburton. So I don't know what this is going to mean for Halliburton. Uh, jurisdiction, Halliburton documents, or Halliburton uh, potential uh, liability going forward. Uh, but a really significant decision, and I think every uh, every U.S.-based general counsel and compliance officer needs to be aware of it. Great. So now, uh, unfortunately, we, we have another uh, tragedy to discuss and some very uh, timely commenta- commentary from our colleague Matt Kelly of Radical Compliance, And um, the facts are is that a risk assurance associate from PwC at the firm's Dallas office, uh, Botham Gene, 
was shot and killed on September 6th by an off-duty Dallas police officer. The officer and Jean lived in the same apartment building, and she apparently tried to enter his apartment by mistake, believing it was her apartment, and she opened fire and killed him. Um, The further details is that uh, Botham Jean was uh, African-American, and the officer, Amber Geiger, was white. So this is a a huge tragedy that struck many people uh, at PwC, and it moved uh, U.S. Chairman Tim Ryan to circulate an email this week asking employees to contemplate changes that that excuse me contemplate the challenges that black colleagues face in this country simply for being black and to see if they could try to build a better workplace and a better country for all parties so um matt's piece uh first of all applauds uh mr ryan for trying to do something uh positive in, in light of this horrible tragedy but um what what Matt says is Ryan's actions stuck with him so much because they're not going to, quote, solve, unquote, the social dysfunctions that Gene's death brings to light, but they're a step in the right directions. And that's what ethics is all about. It's about having the faith in your actions that they can make a difference eventually, even when all the things around you are discouraging. So, uh, this is something that, unfortunately, we struggle with as a society, but there's been a, a real outpouring at PwC, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, this uh, movement can catch fire, because uh, I'm just getting um, you know, sick of reading about these things and having to report them, it, it seems, almost on a weekly basis. I would just add that uh, I guess being black in your own apartment now is a reason to be shot and killed by a white police officer. So uh, on that note, uh, we had some commentary by Matthew Stevenson on the Hoskins case. He's previously looked at it, and he took a deeper dive into it, Jay, uh, to try to determine if in his view it was correctly decided. And he says it's probably not. He has a pretty uh, in-depth legal analysis, but it really turns on something that he identifies as complicity and conspiracy liability. Conspiracy liability generally says that if you are a part of a criminal enterprise, uh, you can be charged uh, if someone else in the enterprise engages in a crime. And the classic example, Jay, would be the getaway driver of a, a car in a bank robbery. Uh, who could be charged with a bank robbery. And Professor Stevenson's analysis is that neither Congress uh, nor the court, or Congress did not intend to cut back on that type of liability when it passed uh, the FCPA. So that's where he shakes out on it. He's got a a pretty interesting and vigorous debate he's got going with several commentators uh, on the blog post. We've, of course, linked to it. And he's going to – I contacted him about it because I wanted to do a podcast with him. But he uh, he says he's coming out with another post. So I'm going to hold off on a little bit on that. But it's a really interesting uh, take on it. I don't know if the Department of Justice will uh, appeal to the Supreme Court or not. But uh, uh, as always, very thoughtful, thorough analysis from uh, Professor Stevenson up at uh, Harvard. And our last story that we're going to look at this week is um, comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insight. 
It's written by Leila Swark, I guess, if that's how you say her name, on why organizations need a global framework. And um, she starts off her piece talking about um, uh, a famous uh, cognitive uh, paper that was written in 1956 by George Miller of Princeton. And he published a paper called The Magic Number Seven, Plus or Minus Two. And it uh, became one of the most cited scientific papers of all times. Miller's idea was that the maximum number of objects a human can keep in short-term memory is seven plus or minus two. So that magic could be either digits of the phone number or uh, playing cards if you're playing in a game or if you're rain men and you're counting cards in Vegas or potentially where golf balls are hit on a driving range. And she uses this article as a jumping off point that – if you have a global ethics and compliance framework that you really have to keep this uh, idea about the limited amount of information that can be possess, uh, processed and contained by individuals, you got to keep that in mind. And if you're doing a business in 20 or 30 or 40 companies, uh, it's quite easy for information to slip through the cracks. So she talks about different ways about how to work about uh, setting up a situation where you can really keep track of things on a global basis. Uh, some of them have to do with culture. Some of them have to do with language and translations and making sure the source material is interpreted correctly in the other jurisdictions where you're doing business. And uh, she also talks about having a fresh pair of eyes that can come in and take a look at your processes and procedures and make sure that you are doing the right thing for your organization. So we link to that in our show notes. And um, Tom, I think that's all the news we have, but what's the uh, information in the conference and the uh, Tom Fox world? So first of all, I am putting on a compliance masterclass, Jay, in Boston on September 25 and 26. It's hosted by, wait for it, Affiliated Monitors. So thank you, Affiliated Monitors and Mr. Monitors. Uh, I have linked to the registration and information in the show notes. So if you're looking for the top master class by the guy who wrote the book on compliance, uh, this is the one for you. Uh, next up is uh, Converge 18, put on by Conversant in um, Denver on October 9th through 11th. Affiliated Monitors, Eric Feldman is speaking. I'm speaking. And I have a 50% discount for anyone who wants to attend. It's really going to be a, a, a listener to this podcast or even fans of the podcast. So it's it's turning into one of the top compliance conferences around. I'm doing a lot of prep work where I'm talking to some of the speakers so I know of whence I speak. So I hope that um, uh, you will attend. And then finally, Jay, I've had a great podcast series week with three of your colleagues. The aforementioned Eric Feldman, Rod Grandin. And Don Stern, and I've been visiting with him on the role of an independent monitor in assessing ethics and compliance in the M&A context. And it really turned Jay into a master class on uh, M&A from the compliance perspective. So in part one, Eric talked about the whys, what's, and hows. In part two, Don talked to me about the Im impact of mergers and acquisitions on both parties, the target and the acquirer. 
in part three, uh, Eric came back where I got to ask him a question I always wanted to ask, which is, what's the plan? In part four, Don returned to uh, talk about, or excuse me, Rod uh, spoke about the oversight of the merged entities. And then Don concluded, uh, concludes today, rather, with uh, how the entire M&A process benefits from an independent monitor. And and really, um, if you've got any interest in, in how to do uh, mergers and acquisitions under the FCPA from the compliance perspective, you could not do better than uh, taking a look at these um, articles that I've written for each uh, podcast and then listening to the full series. It's it's really, like I said, a master class. Yeah, you, you did a great job with them, Tom. And uh, this kind of harkens me back to my M&A days when I was working at uh, Focal Point Partners here in LA, a, a middle market investment bank. And I think you know, one kind of takeaway I got from the five-part series is there's always such a rush to get a transaction over the finish line. And, you know, people are looking at earnings and people are looking at synergies. But I would say that there is not a large rush for the investment bankers and the lawyers and the accountants to be looking at the ethical uh, state of the target and the acquirer. And then furthermore, there's even, you know, uh, short shrift given to the fact about what's going to happen with these merged entities, which culture is going to be followed, and how do you bring the uh, the new uh, folks on board and get uh, get them to fit in with the culture. So these are things that we um, see constantly when we're reading articles about successor liability. But the uh, I, I think it could. It would be great listening for anybody who has an interest, but also there is a way we could kind of get this to the M&A attorneys and the investment banking community could uh, be very helpful for them for uh, preventing uh, ethical nightmares that are down the road. So, Jay, uh, I think uh, that takes us uh, to the end. Uh, Any report on the Red Sox this week? Well, what did we say? who are you three? Is your magic number three and ours is six or is it the other way around? Uh, no, the, the Astros magic number is 12. Oh, 12. Okay. But, uh, the A's have been, um, coming on lately, haven't they? Yeah, they have, uh, really taken it, uh, taking it to everybody too bad. The Astros uh, have won eight out of nine, including two out of three in Fenway and then two sweeps after that. So, yeah, they've really been coming on. So um, you, you got that broom ready, right? Got the broom ready for an October sweep. All right. Well, and what about last week uh, in Foxborough? Any any thoughts there? What, that the uh, Texans continue their over for Brady? Yep. Yep, yep. So uh, Bill, um, uh, uh, the coach, the Houston Texans coach, uh, proves once again he cannot coach in uh, the National Football League. He's not only outcoached by Belichick, but uh, he blows um, blows the game plan, blows the time management, and uh, about everything else. So yeah, there, um, there, there was not much of a sense of urgency for. Was it one of those field goals at the end, or was it punting? It seemed like they they, they ticked off at least a minute and a half from the clock for no reason. Well, there was that, and then there was also a play where um, the, it was it was the first Gronk touchdown catch, which was a fabulous catch 
I thought it was a clearly a catch, but apparently there was some controversy of whether it was a catch under the Byzantine NFL rules. Well, uh, the um, uh, it, it was under two minutes left, and the uh, under two minutes, there's a touchdown catch is supposed to be reviewed by the league office. Apparently, the referees didn't get that memo, uh, but O'Brien could have called a timeout uh, and thrown a red flag uh, to get a, a review. Uh, but he didn't think that was his job, so uh, he didn't do that. Which, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe he was in the spirit uh, spirit of the law there, but sure it turned out to be a, a fairly inane play. But that catch by Gronk, uh, he, um, Brady threw uh, threw uh, a defender in front of him, uh, under a defender behind him. Gronk makes the catch and then powers into the end zone. It was classic Gronk. It it just proves to you that even when Gronk is double covered, he's open. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well yeah. said. So I, I think another thing, sorry to wax football on all you non-NFL, all you haters out there who don't like the new Nike spokesman. But uh, I think it's always interesting when the Patriots get together with the uh, Texans because you've got Romeo Cornell, who used to coach the defense for uh, Belichick, you've got the head coach who you love at Houston, Bill O'Brien, who used to be the offensive coordinator. So, I mean, these teams know each other so well, and they know the strategies. So for New England uh, to keep that dominance going, it just, uh, you know, I hope they don't have a letdown this week against uh, the Jaguars. Uh, the Pats have already lost uh, one of their new uh, linebackers, Jeremy Hill, that came to us from Cincinnati. He's out with an ACL, and um, one of our other running backs is in the concussion protocol. So with Julian uh, Edelman still serving three more games of his four-game suspension, uh, we are very thin on the offense, uh, probably thinnest as Brady's been in the past uh, 10 to 15 years. So uh, I think this game with Jacksonville is going to be a tough match. It's in Jacksonville. And there's also uh, somebody there who's decided to spout off and say the Pats ain't so good. So uh, not that they need any bulletin board material, but um, I think it should be a great game. And it's uh, the late game on Sunday. Who are the Texans playing? I don't even know. (laughs) Okay. You're just like such an Astros homer now. Complete, completely. I would, I would love to pull up some of your blogs from two, three years ago. And well, just... that leads into a couple of things I wanted to, to add on, Jay. One is I interviewed uh, Ben Ryder yesterday, uh, author of Astro Ball, about his book. And, oh, cool. Uh, we we talked about that, and and I fessed up uh, to being a uh, a hater, uh, both of uh, the Astros and of that article he wrote in 2015. Uh, or rather 2014 that the Astros would win the world series with George Springer on the cover. Uh, so we had a good laugh about that. And, uh, but it was, a uh, it's a great interview. Um, uh, I think I finally cut it off at 45 minutes and, and I said, look, I could talk to you for three hours about this cause he <laughs> knows the stuff. And so we had a lot of fun, but I'm going to post that for my 400th, uh, FCPA compliance report. And as a final uh, shout out before uh, you take us home, Jay, I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, birthday boy plus one day, Howard Sklar. 
Howard and I, uh, it was actually Howard that started the original This Week in FCPA and asked me to join him. Uh, he's now in the corporate world. And uh, so, Howard, if you're listening, uh, thanks for uh, giving us the inspiration. Sorry we lost you in the corporate world. And much belated happy birthday. Happy birthday, man. So, uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for spending some of your time with us and learning about the top FCPA stories for this week in FCPA episode 120, the week ending September 14th, the Hurricane Florence and Beyond edition. And we hope all our colleagues, friends, and relatives who are dealing with uh, Florence and the other store, wishing them Godspeed and they come through in complete safety. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. I have two great opportunities for you that I want to talk to you about before we sign off today. The first is I'm putting on my Compliance Masterclass training in Boston on September 25 and 26. It's going to be hosted by our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. For more information and registration, you can check out the show notes. Also, I've been uh, given a 50% discount to one of the top compliance conferences around, Converge 18, which will be held in Denver on October 9th through 11th. Hope you can join me at this event. Eric Feldman and Michael Volkoff will also be speaking. Uh, I link to the discount in the show notes, also the agenda and more information. I hope you can uh, make Converge 18, and I hope you can join me at the Compliance Masterclass September 25 and 26 in Boston. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join Jay and I next week. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.